Buckle up, people. It's federal election time. You've got one vote. How are you going to decide who to vote for? From Hope Media, How in God's Name Should I Vote? is a podcast looking at how and why Christians interact with the political process. But don't worry, this is a campaign-free zone. We're not going to tell you who to vote for, but we are going to dig deep into how following Jesus might impact your vote. Why should I vote for the benefit of others? That's the question we're tackling on today's episode of How in God's Name Should I Vote? And you know what? It's pretty counter-cultural because our instinct is to ask which party is offering me the best deal? Which candidate has my best interests at heart? In this episode, we're going to challenge that mindset. Seriously, consider voting for someone else's benefit. So I reckon whether you're a metal worker or a doctor or a small business owner, a Christian should be saying, who needs my vote most? What would a Christian nation, if there could be such a thing, do? It would throw its arms open to those who are most needy. And clearly they are absolutely poor whose lives depend on our aid, whose lives are lost when our aid gets cut. Don't vote uh, in this election. We would always say that caring for the poor isn't a left issue or a right issue. It's a moral issue. The kingdom is already here and yet not yet at the same time. It's here and not yet. So we choose for the kingdom and for Jesus and for what God says. That's coming up in this third episode of How in God's Name Should I Vote? Let's begin with some background. We caught up with Professor Ruth Powell, Director of NCLS Research, a centre that conducts surveys on church vitality and spiritual well-being. She's an expert on what matters most to church-going Christians. We asked her how Christians have traditionally voted. One of the things we can see is the younger you are, the less likely you are to vote Liberal National. So just to give you an example, people in their 20s, only 24% of church attenders vote uh, Liberal National compared to 57% of people over 70. So there's something going on with age. Why is that a direct correlation that the younger you are, the less likely you are to vote for the coalition? They are finding their way again into some of those other parties. And I actually think again that there is perhaps influence around Pentecostal leadership or positioning that is encouraging younger attenders to follow a pattern of voting for some of those other parties. I think that's a whole interesting discussion. The old adage that if, when you're 20, if you don't vote Labor, you don't have a heart, and by the time you're 40, if you don't vote Liberal, you don't have a brain, that doesn't <laughs> seem to be, that dichotomy doesn't seem to be playing out quite the same any, any longer. No, again, we've seen, in terms of the impact of age on those who vote Labor, it's very stable. Every age group has about the same proportion, roughly, who vote Labor. And you see over time, about the same proportion of attenders vote Labor. So it's a very stable group, that one, which is interesting in itself. And the dynamic, you know, movement of uh, of voting patterns is moving around sort of 
where they locate themselves with regard to positioning across a range of conservative parties. So again, the overall message is if you go to church, you probably are more likely to vote more conservatively. But I actually would say again, my observation from just having a look at this information is it is less about being Christian because obviously Christians vote for all parties. It's more about other factors that seem to actually drive people's voting patterns. So it is their age, their denominational affiliation. And I suspect if we actually looked at which, you know, whether you're in the city or the country or things like that, that those things which predict how other Australians vote probably have similar impact on how church-attending Australians vote. Does the research show that there are issues that concern church-going Christians in Australia across the board, or are they also similarly differentiated by age? Well, I think, um, you know, you'd have to say, what concerns church-going Christians? Well, at one level, it's the same as everybody. They're humans. (laughs) Um, You know, issues of security, of well-being, making sure there's a future for their kids, basic life needs, of course, are there and will impact how people, you know, what they're concerned about, everyday life. If you're thinking public policy issues, one of the things we know is that most church attenders would support advocacy. 80%, 8 in 10, say Christians should work to change the structures of society to create a more just society. Now, that sounds fantastic, but then you say, what issues do you care about? How should this advocacy happen? And you suddenly see this incredible diversity across the churches. Here's another example. 83% say there's a moral obligation for Christians to be active about environmental issues. But when you look at the, you know, your behaviours, what do you actually do? What does your church do? How often do you talk about it? It's not as strong as that attitude. Or here's another one. You know, 62% say churches should do more to promote reconciliation with First Peoples. And then you go, so what have you actually done? And you get about the same, 6 in 10 going, well, I haven't actually done anything. So there's this (laughs) gap between what church attenders say should be happening and what they believe they should be concerned about and what they're actually doing personally. So that's a bit of a challenge, that gap. Now, on a more positive note, we've got about three quarters of church attenders who say Australian society is improved by immigrants coming in, that they add to Australian society. And what we can see also is this really big increase in the in churches offering migrant ministry and intentionally engaging new arrivals. You know, 44% of churches say we've done something to provide support for recent arrivals in the last 12 months. So I think that's probably a better story in terms of saying we believe that welcome to the stranger, welcome to the newcomer to our lands is important and churches are actually getting on board with doing things as well. It's kind of depressing to see the difference between our aspiration and our action. I wonder if it's the same when we get to the ballot box. Does your public rhetoric affect your personal vote? Maybe it's currently an unconsidered question. And then there's Jesus... I wonder if WWJV bracelets will ever take off. John Dixon, founding director of the Centre for Public Christianity, reckons Jesus was pretty upfront about this. Obviously, Jesus was concerned about those in need. A huge part of his teaching is about loving our neighbour, doing good to those who hate us, caring for the poor, being merciful to those who are in need. These sorts of things are the outlook of the Christian in the world. And when you think politically, 
it seems to me the fundamental way of voting Christianly is a vote for other people. Unlike much of the political rhetoric and political expectation, Christians don't vote for my interest group. We vote for the good of the other. We use this precious gift of the democratic vote to help other people. So what that means is I don't think a Christian, say, small business owner should first be thinking about what vote will be best for small business or the middle worker who's a Christian. I don't think they should be first thinking what's best for the metal workers or for the trade unions more generally. I know that's how we're always told to think, and that's how the political rhetoric comes across. It appeals to that vote-for-your-own-cohort mentality. But um, we're called to put others first, to honour one another above ourselves, to consider others better than ourselves. So I reckon whether you're a metal worker or a doctor or a small business owner, a Christian should be saying, who needs my vote most? Just let that sink in for a sec. Who needs my vote the most? It could reframe the idea of democracy from I get my say to I get to give voice to the voiceless. It's democracy as justice enabler. And that's a mind blow. Author and missiologist Mike Frost reckons looking to our history might help us determine a way forward. I think that we ought to be thinking as a nation about what's best for the poor, the marginalised, the the immigrant, the refugee, uh, what's best for uh, Indigenous Australians, what's best for the poorest in the world. I mean, I think that we should take seriously our extraordinary blessing that's come to European immigrants in this country, to Australian society. We are extraordinarily blessed, extraordinarily wealthy. I know people listening to this will say, I don't feel very wealthy. And in saying that, I'm not saying every single person is. And I understand there's great inequity. But I think as Christians, if we're saying Christian values have helped shape this country, as lots of people want to do, well then, great. What would a Christian nation, if there could be such a thing, do? It would throw its arms open to those who are most needy. So no, I think that those kinds of things, foreign aid, concern about uh, reconciliation, immigration policies, concern about access and equity for all. Those things are essential and they're not just local. Okay, so let's apply what Mike Frost says. One of the groups most in need of our vote are First Australians. I asked Indigenous leader and advocate Brooke Prentice how we can use our vote on behalf of Aboriginal peoples. That's a hard one because I'm not sure how we can utilise our vote to do that. And I think it's got to come from not just one action of voting. For me, it's actually participating in the political process, in the election process. So I want people to do some education, ask questions, but ask questions of all of their candidates. I think the time is over where political parties just rely on these policies and we hear the same thing from the media and we need to ask the questions about what truly matters. And as Christians, loving our neighbour, many of these policies aren't talking about loving their neighbour. So let's ask the candidates the real questions. How will they love, how will the candidate of whichever political party or independent, how will they love their neighbour as themselves? How will they love their Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander neighbour? Where do they stand on treaty and treaties? How will that candidate 
personally work towards closing the gap? What will they personally do if they were elected to parliament? These are real life issues. I also asked Brooke why the hopes and needs of Indigenous Australians should be a priority for all voters beyond the simplified rhetoric of closing the gap. Well, you use that lovely word gap and, you know, the political sense of closing the gap. We've had over 10 years of closing the gap and the gap hasn't closed because there's been lack of acknowledgement, lack of investment, lack of listening to Aboriginal peoples. Many of us have the solutions, but we can't get funding from the government for our organisations. And it's going to many non-Indigenous organisations, including the churches, and they aren't sitting down with us properly and letting us lead. We have amazing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are professional, who are qualified, um, but we're locked out of those discussions and locked out of those tables. And so we've actually got this language in Australian society that we've had for over 10 years now of closing the gap. And still, I would think many Christians wouldn't understand what that means. But the reality that we see as Aboriginal Christian leaders, because we are there with our community and as Aboriginal peoples, that our peoples, Aboriginal peoples are dying too young and too often. And as Christians, where we should be people of healing and hope, and we've got that message to share. But it's not just about evangelism. It's actually about real work, providing real resources for those that have nothing and those that have enough to share those resources and those wealth. And, you know, for me, that's Jesus' message and uh, how we can all learn more. It's understanding also that Sydney is the largest community of Aboriginal people in the country. Brisbane is the second largest community Aboriginal people in Australia. It's then Perth and then Melbourne, basically. And so you've got these major capital cities, but often when Christians think to get involved with Aboriginal people, there's so many treks up to the Northern Territory. And my Aboriginal brothers and sisters in the Northern Territory, many of whom I know and Aboriginal Christian leaders up there, you know, they they are doing it tough. But we can learn here and then we can provide resources for all. So, you know, I think it's just about really understanding who your Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander neighbour is. If there's one thing that's certain, it's this. If you want to vote for others, you've got to hear the stories, their stories. I was so challenged by Brooke because she's right. I've lived a whole heap of my life telling stories because my position has given me opportunity to do so. I've also got to learn to shut up and listen. As a copper, Andrew Scipioni saw the extremes of human behaviour. And his reflection is that domestic violence is one of the biggest issues we face as a nation. When he concluded his role as New South Wales Police Commissioner, Andrew Scipioni took on the role of Chairman of George's River Life Care, a charity that helps people fleeing domestic violence situations. Katrina Rowe asked him why domestic and family violence is a cause so close to his heart. Yes, Katrina, look, you're right. Um, I, I saw the, the, the very worst that people can do to each other and the, the very best that people mm-hmm. can do for each other. But this particularly was a crime, and, and domestic violence is a crime. Let's make no mistake about that. This was a crime that can affect everyone. It doesn't matter where you're from, what your postcode is, 
what you earn, what your status in society is. The reality is domestic violence is the single biggest underreported crime that we have. And in reality, it's probably one of the, the crimes that takes its toll the most. When we lose one woman per week murdered, Mm. to domestic violence, we know we've got a problem. Yeah. What uh, kind of impact does domestic violence have on on families and individuals? Well, look, incredibly um, impacting. Mm. You know, the reality is it's not just the victim, you know, the the terrible impact um, in, in a physical sense. It's the family, it's the children, it's the loved ones, it's the neighbours, it's the offender. You know, if the offender is arrested, they go before a court, they'll go to jail if it's serious enough. And then it goes on from there. It's the, it's the problems that are associated with it, the, the children later on developing their own problems. And, you know, unfortunately for some, um, some children, they, they see this as the way that they should behave generations later when they marry. Mm-hmm. So this has not just an immediate impact, it has a long-term impact and it's something that really is best described as a scourge. Yeah. What, what's the link, too, between domestic violence and, and homelessness? Is, is domestic violence a big cause of homelessness? Katrina, if I was to tell you that domestic violence is the single biggest reason why women and children sleep rough, mm. that is, they have no home, they're homeless, and I'm not talking about necessarily going and sleeping just in, in the neighbour's house, these are, these are women and children predominantly, not always, but predominantly, that are living in parks, on park benches, in cars. Um, you know, can you imagine being a mum? You're a mum. Mm. Having to get the kids ready, having to give them some breakfast, get them dressed, get them to school just to get their day started and doing it all from a car because you can't go home. Katrina, we're better than that. We're Australians. We're better than that. The reality of homelessness as a result of family and domestic violence crosses every boundary, education, economic and national, and it's part of the complexity of global poverty. Joe Knight is a National Advocacy Coordinator for Tear Australia, an international organisation working in this area. Look, we would always say that caring for the poor isn't a left issue or a right issue, it's a moral issue. And we're in a position to actually do something. We're a blessed country. We can do more. So that's why we'd encourage our nation's leaders to use resources in a way that actually will build that more just and compassionate world. All people are made in the image of God. And, yeah, as you said, the Bible calls us to love our neighbour as ourselves and work to overcome injustice. So I wouldn't say that we should be voting for the benefit for others or ourselves and trying to have some sort of hierarchy there, but that we're called to love our neighbours ourselves and that leads to this bigger, broader global sense of what it means to be a neighbour and our neighbourly responsibility. You know, if we look around our homes, you can just see evidence of your global neighbourhood. Look at, you know, TV, where was that made? Or as you go about preparing breakfast or a meal, the, the food and the food systems and the people that sit behind those systems, you know, we are in such an interconnected, complex world just need to, to turn on our radio or our news to even hear the stories of people living around the world. So we need to have this bigger, broader sense of, of global neighbourliness and that needs to come through to how we vote and, and use those opportunities that we have in a democracy like Australia. Unless you've been living under a rock, you'll be deeply aware that war, persecution and poverty all relate to global refugee movements. 
John Dixon was recently in one of the real refugee hotspots and reflected with Liam Denny about the ongoing unfolding crisis. So I went to um, Jordan to visit refugee camps on the border of Jordan and Syria. And then I went to Lebanon and the same border camps for Syrian refugees and also looking at urban services to help refugees out of poverty, to help them back into work, to help kids back into school and so on. Uh, trauma counselling, which of course a lot of Syrians need. And it was very confronting in a number of ways. Obviously, to see these people face to face puts an emotional power to what I'd already rationally worked out was an important issue. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are like three million refugees on these borders and they are in a desperate situation and they want to go back to Syria, but conditions are not going to allow that for quite some time. They don't want to come to Australia, so they're stuck. They're in border camps or they're in tiny flats living as a family in one room. I spent some time in one room, the one room this family has in Beirut. All nine of them live in one room. That's the size of my home office that I'm talking to you at uh, from right now is the size of the room these nine people lived in. So it was like an emotional jolt for a rational thing I'd already known. I guess we back here at home see these images quite a bit on our television screens, but what can't we pick up as we look at those pictures from what it's actually like there on the ground? What's the one thing that you've taken back with you, a new perspective that you have? All we tend to see are the masses of people. But when you go there and you sit in a room with one family and hear their story, they're real human beings made in the image of God for whom Christ died. That's how much he loves them. These are my fellow human beings. And there it is again. Listening to stories, that's what humanises the big issues. Because it can be easy to forget about the struggles of those who we can't immediately see and who we don't interact with in our day-to-day -day lives. However, it's often those people who need our time and attention more than anyone. Our culture keeps them out of sight and so out of mind for a reason. But how does this relate to your vote? Well, Tim Costello points out that those with most at stake in this election don't actually get a voice in our democratic process. Clearly the uh, absolutely poor whose lives depend on our aid, whose lives are lost when our aid gets cut, don't vote. Uh, in this election and therefore don't count and they've been cut again, not to mention, of course, New Start recipients who didn't get an increase. So I still think the question of how did we become this mean, is this really us? Who are we as an open, optimistic, generous people is still a threshold question in this election. Is there genuinely a mean-spirited core here that is part of a side of Australian values that we've perhaps not seen quite so publicly before? Look, I do link this to what I described as the uh, toxic, paralysing debate about refugees. I think aid has got sort of mixed up with uh, a turning inwards, a fear of the other. My faith challenge for myself and for your listeners is, do I see the image of God in others who are not made in my image? and they have a different religion. Maybe it's Islam, and that's what scares us. Maybe the colour of their skin isn't uh, my colour. Maybe their sexuality is different. Do I see the image of God in people who are not made in my image? 
And I do think the aid cuts reflect a sense at government level of saying Australians are turning inward, the retribalising going on around the world is particularly exaggerated here. Foolish because we're in the neighbourhood where the world's poor live. 22 nations surround us. Only two are rich, Singapore and uh, New Zealand. The rest are poor. Rich and poor, haves and have-nots. It all seems to come back to finances. How much should we be willing to spend on others? Is there a rational economic reason to help those most in need? We asked the economics editor of The Conversation, Peter Martin, formerly from The Age, how our nation's finances interact with the task of caring for the needy. We tend to care more about the people who are nearest us. Now, in that question, who is my neighbour? In a sense, it was a fairly easy question for Jesus, right? Because, uh, yeah, okay, sure, your neighbour might be uh, the Samaritan, but they, they weren't very far away and they weren't that different from you. So Chinese citizens are now having huge increases in their income and, and that's it's a good thing. But we haven't thought of their needs to have a high standard of living as importantly as ours. And some of the people, you know, concerned about climate change are saying, oh, we don't want these Chinese to industrialise. They're saying it about people from India too. We don't treat people who are distant from us the same as us. Now, we also do it across generations. There's a whole um, discipline of economics called time preference. They use discount rates and things to, uh, to take account of the reality that while we care for our children, we care for their children and their children's children and the children of subsequent generations less and less. That's why we build buildings that don't last more than 100 years. Right. Mm -hmm. That's why we design bridges to last limited periods of time, because we treat in the same way as we treat people from distant countries as having less of a claim to the things that we have than ourselves. We treat people in the future. And this is used implicitly or not by uh, the people who say that, uh, you know, global warming doesn't matter. You know, we and our children will be dead by then. What we are doing is, and it's a natural human thing, so much so that there are formulas about it. We are treating people in the future, their lives as being much less important than our own. That's Peter Martin challenging our ideas about who is our neighbour in an industrialised, globalised economy and stretching us to think about how our actions today affect our neighbours tomorrow, including our own future generations. Jim Wallace is one of the leading thinkers in this area. He says a care for others and bringing the good news of Jesus to those most in need should be the thing that unites Christians around the world. If our gospel, whatever else it does, is not good news to the poor, it's simply not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm. And so the more we're coming together around the world to want to wanna understand how the gospel and we, we must be good news to the poor and the marginal and the vulnerable, that's bringing us together around the world, evangelical, Pentecostal, Catholic, there are good choices to always make, 
for those who are vulnerable, for those who are poor, for those who are immigrants and refugees, for those who are in refugee camps around the world, for those whose lives are in danger because of climate change, and they've contributed least to it. They're often poor, marginal people of color around the world who will be the ones to suffer the most when the impact of climate change gets worse and worse. So I want to choose on behalf of the people that God has chosen, that God tells me to stand with in solidarity and to work with and lead with and protect. Politics is a matter of policy and compromise, and and so we can press for more social justice, more protection, more or fairness, inequality around the world growing every single day. That's a biblical issue. When CEOs in my country make literally 500 times what their average workers make, that's a problem. Not just economically, it is going to upend the economy and our politics, but it's also theologically a problem. We don't believe that somebody's 500 times more worthwhile than somebody else in the same company. It was Christians who helped end the slave trade. But then we had to come back and do it again with civil rights and voting rights in this country. So we keep going. The kingdom is already here, and yet not yet at the same time. It's here and not yet. We choose for the kingdom and for Jesus and for what God says, and then we push politics and politicians in that direction. Never perfect, never complete, never over. It's just a guess, but I reckon you've never thought that an application of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, could be how you choose to vote, but it is. And we can continue it with the things we speak out about. And there's another challenge. In a culture that has become accustomed to division and aggression, how do we speak respectfully and accurately and sensitively? In our next episode, there's more trying to find the gotcha moment and and playing the person rather than the policy and trying to get the grab. And people know the power of social media and the power of the mainstream media. Social researcher Mark McCrindle will help us think through political rhetoric. What things are being said and how are they being said? What is the impact of social media on the political debate and tone? When I hear a lot of commentators on their soapboxes today, I realise they're profoundly anti-democratic. They, they think the mob, the people, get it wrong. We'll hear again from John Anderson, Vicky Howarth and Barney Zwartz from the Centre for Public Christianity, alongside a host of others. And if you're enjoying How in God's Name Should I Vote, you might like to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks to our producers, Katrina Rowe and Liam Denny, and our online content manager, Andrew Morris. Production by Richard Hamwee.